Welcome to the Untribal Podcast, the show that gives you news content by regular people for regular people. We've got a cracking guest on with us today. By the way, if you looked at the CV, you'd think I'd had the red carpet out this morning for this recording. Seriously, she's worked in the Big Apple, movie sets, The Rolling Stones, Earth, Wind and Fire, Mariah Carey, and now, Ariane, you can add Innis Burns to that list, so you're welcome. <laughs> Without further ado, it's the Keith Ness, Catherine Bigelow, Ariane Burgess, ladies and gents. How you doing, Ariane? You all right? I'm doing all right. With an introduction like that, Ennis, uh, thank you for telling everybody about my uh, illustrious past in New York City. <laughs> <laughs> nice one. Well, when I first saw you on the telly, Ariane, I looked at you and, and seen you were from Edinburgh. And I uh, was like, oh, you know, that's where I'm from. I'm, I'm going to look up this woman and see what she's about. And then I heard the accent. I was like, hold on a second here. This last is an absolute fraud. That's the worst Edinburgh accent I've ever heard. <sighs> Well, you know, living in New York City, um, well, I lived there for about 20 years. Um, and when I first went there, I, I didn't have a particularly strong Edinburgh accent, but I did have one. And I used to use a lot of fantastic Scots words. And people wouldn't understand when I was working on the film sets. Film sets, you need to communicate quickly and have action happen. So people need to understand what you're saying. So I had to kind of smooth it out a bit so people would would you know get the immediate communication that something needed to happen so it gradually got softened out over the years and then yeah sadly I need to drink whiskey to bring it back well maybe that's a good thing <laughs> maybe that's a good thing well tell us about about your journey Ariane it's fascinating well uh yeah somebody actually recently said I should write a book about it because I have done an awful lot of different things I think that that's great for being uh, in the role of an MSP because I think I bring a lot of different and varied life experience I lived in London for a while, um, lived in New York City for a long time, doing and, and in New York City, along with my short stint in the film industry and music industry. I, I at some point I realized I think that's I, I realized uh, we are in trouble with the climate and what's going on with the planet. And so I actually had a kind of career shift at that point. And I started doing a lot more community work in, in New York City, in, particularly in the South Bronx, helping communities start community gardens, uh, people growing food uh, and, and kind of realizing, you know, that important link, where does our food come from? Um, and of course, also I lived uh, in New York City through the um, September 11th, 9-11 attacks, which was, mind-altering. I you could never imagine that um, these huge buildings would come down. And I think that also brought a kind of change in um, my perspective of you know, what we what we need to be doing and working on. And at some point, um, I always came back to Scotland. It's always been in my heart. I always came back every year to see Scotland, to see family. And at some point, I realized it's time to come home. And uh, it's funny, actually, because I've been reflecting on that a bit. And I, I think around the time, um, there was a very good, uh, a very good um, initiative, I think, by Visit Scotland called the Homecoming. I think maybe they got to me. So anyway, I came back and um, it was fortunate to, to arrive back in Scotland just in the lead up to the Indie Ref. And I think in the, in the few, it came out in 2010 and I think having that perspective of living in the States and living in a different country and then coming back helped me really see that we were kind of hitched to something that felt like something in terms of being hitched to governance from Westminster, hitched to something that felt very much like uh, holding on to a past and really preventing Scotland from being the modern country it wants to be. And also I had a sense that 
I, I, something that you know, community is a very strong thing for me, and I and I think that's the future for the climate emergency and addressing um, biodiversity loss is that it needs to be taking place with communities at a local level, communities of place primarily. And, and I think in Scotland, we still have or had at that time, I think we're losing it fast, quite quickly in rural areas, but we had it very strongly, um, these kind of like the sense of community, the sense of wanting to work together to help each other out, to help our neighbours, to you know, help the people that live down the street or in the township. Um, and, and so that is what I'm looking to do in terms of, you know, my role as a Highlands and Islands MSP is to really support that reweaving, that maintaining population in place, and, um, you know, so that people can really tackle the, the climate nature emergency. And another thing I'll say is that when I lived in New York City, I one, one of the things I, I worked on some independent films, and one of them I worked on was with a friend who did a lot of work around um, um, migrant laborers coming from South and Central America. And we actually worked, we were creating these stories, but we were actually working with people who'd had that experience. So the actors were people who'd had that experience. It comes from uh, a neorealist, uh, this idea of filmmaking from Italy, so, um, way back where you actually work with the, um, the people and they become the actors. So I got to meet people who had incredible stories about why they left Central America, why they left South America and the struggle that they have, the economic and um, kind of political oppression that they faced. And they they went through incredible things. I, I could just get on a plane and go to New York City uh, and kind of walk, you know, walk in and be civilly treated. But these folks were coming. Um, I remember one story, incredible story of someone who stowed away in a boat in a, you know, in a in a ship, but in the lifeboat stowed away. And and another story was of my my Spanish teacher because I decided I wanted to learn Spanish so I could communicate with folks. He uh, was a former tin mine um, organizer. Um, I can't now. I can't remember which country he was from, but he stowed away in you know the kind of like classic stories you hear, stowed away in the um, trunk of a car to come over the border through Mexico. So really risking their lives incredibly. So it raised this question in me: Why did I leave Scotland? What was it that made me leave a country that? seemingly didn't have any political or economic oppression right when I was growing up I didn't have that kind of awareness um and 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 I and I, what, what it brought me back to is actually the <clears throat> the Highland clearances in in a kind of odd way it was actually talking to a Scottish friend an artist in New York City in in um in a bar in New York one night and I was saying we were talking about Scotland and it's that and uh I said, yeah, I, you know, just really wondering why I left. And he said, have you, he, he said, oh, um, I think he just said something about the Highland Clearances. And I said, the what? And so I grew up in Scotland at a time when you weren't taught about the Highland Clearances. The only thing that I was taught about in terms of Highland Clearances was, was on the, I, I think most kids go on this, um, uh, if you're not doing, what was it in um, O grades or O-hires? That's what we did in, in my time. If you weren't doing them, if you're in, in third year, you got sent away on a trip. So there was less pressure in school. <clears throat> and uh, this teacher dropped us off at Croik, um, Croik 
um, chapel, which is where the, it's kind of like the famous chapel where you can see the etchings of people that were waiting to um, be put on ships to go um, across the state and, and Canada elsewhere. Uh, and that was the only, that was the only kind of sh shred of, of understanding the clearances. So I came back in the mid nineties to do a personal piece of work and took myself up to where my ancestors came from in Sutherland and, and really reflected on um, that kind of mass um, clearance of, of, you know, people. And, and, I, and I think, you know, we, we're in a fortunate situation now with land reform and community buyouts and things, but, um, you know, we lost a great deal of connection to land uh, and nature through that. And, you know, if that hadn't happened, we would have had people still living in the straths all across um, the north and, and west of Scotland and the, and the Western Isles. Uh, and I think we're really suffering and struggling. Um, fortunately, what I've learned now since being an MSP is that there is legislation in place um, that requires the government to address the repopulation issues. So that gives me, always gives me something to pick up, a lever to say, you know, we really need to be tackling this. So that's a, a, a lot. Um, but um, yeah, um, yeah. so that kind of reflection, I think the beginning to understand the clearances was uh, for me, the kind of like bit that started winding me back to coming to coming back to Scotland and also choosing to uh, rather than choosing to go back to Edinburgh, choosing to come and live in the Highlands. Wow. And uh, you mentioned writing a book just there. I actually made a purchase recently, Ariane, Life Designed for Women, <laughs> by the one and only Ariane Burgess. <laughs> Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so... Um... That book is, it, there's a very specific market for that book. And it was, so the book is really the audience that I'm addressing. I think it's what's in there is good for anybody, but who I'm trying to address there is actually women uh, living in the United States. That was really the main kind of the focus of the market. And the invitation there is that, um, you know, in order to respond to the climate and nature emergency and, and, and what we're facing, I think we all need to do some radical questioning of our lives. I, I I also, and that's why I'm, you know, in the position I'm in, I'm chosen to enter politics. I think we absolutely need to make structural changes on that big level because no individual effort will, will do it alone. But that book is part one of what I was hoping was going to be a second book coming. Uh, so it kind of starts about you know, kind of like a self-reflection, questioning everything that we've uh, grown up in um, thinking is to be right and true, and and to and just an invitation to kind of question that is is that the case? Is that the thing that I should be doing? Because unless we do that work, if we don't if we don't do that work, I think what we're facing in terms of climate nature emergency and the radical change that we are going to have to make in our lives. It will be unsettling. I mean, I think it will be unsettling any um, any way. But if we actually take the it, it, the book is about really kind of owning our own agency, our own sovereignty, kind of like stepping into we make the choice by asking the questions ourselves, rather than having something forced on us. And my hope with kind of inviting people to do a personal journey of reflection is that then we have more people able to join. Um, in that coming from that place of agency to join in community um, and politically to to push for the changes that we we need to have made, you know, to to question companies that are continuing to um, 
have a business model that ha is, 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 has lots of externalities, uh, but actually that, that the knock-on effect is poor labor practice or um, you know damage to the environment. So I, I, I think that what I'm trying to do in that book is just invite questioning. And I don't know if we actually are invited to question enough when we go, grow up and when we go through school. Um, and so it's, I, I think that's what we need to be doing, absolutely. Well, you mentioned Greta Thunberg um, in your book. Yes. Um, a generation of kids sticking up for climate action. And I've seen a lot of sort of counter opinions on Twitter of people saying, Oh, well, they've got a cheek with their battery charged phone scanning a beef burger from McDonald's, which they got delivered because they couldn't be bothered getting up, you know, not long from their, their interrail, which they've seen flights were cheaper. So they patched the trains all together. Maybe they're sat looking at the amount of Ubers they had the night before, steaming drunk. Meanwhile, they've got Netflix playing in the background, a show they've watched a hundred times and they're not even paying attention, powered by their PS4 and a telly that's pretty much for nothing and and yet we think it's older people that, that are the judas here and, and i'm no saying in that regards either to be fair but do you think talk is cheap from our generation uh no i don't i think that i think the work that greta thunberg and i know a lot of the scottish uh climate activists and you know people who march for friday fridays for the future i think it's really important i i i do wonder if some people are there because it's the thing to do it's fomo right it's like we've, we've got to be there we say be there but i absolutely know that there are people who are deeply involved in this coming from a very passionate place and showing really tremendous leadership and uh, and 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 that work has really i think pushed the conversation on further um, I, I think the next step that we need to be going on is that, you know, yes, do the Fridays for the future, but it's also, uh, so one of my teachers is Joanna Macy. She was a Buddhist and, um, you know, incredible thinker. And, um, and she uh, talks about, um, we can do business as usual. We can be part of the great unraveling, or we can be part of the great turning. And in the great turning, there's three things that we're doing. We are uh, we are doing holding actions. So those are all those kind of dem demos, or you know, kind of Greenpeace things to get on a um, an oil rig and try to slow it down from moving out to sea, or right, we kind of like the spanner in the in the works or the the wrench in the works um, to kind of stop um, the business as usual motion. Or we can be building the future, building the new, coming up with the innovation, the ideas that actually create the world we are going to have to live into. And the third piece is about transforming consciousness. So we have to, which is about thinking differently, thinking about how we relate with each other, how we relate with nature. So um, those are things that I would love to see happening in schools, right? That that kind of level um, of work uh, being done. So. Yes, all the holding actions are important, but if we 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 kind of almost trap ourselves, if we just stay with stop, 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 we've got to actually offer the alternative and the future. Well, you talk a lot about gross domestic product and how the sole strive for economic growth is something that's holding us back as well. Um, are you imagining us in a world like, do you know, like the Isle of Bhutan, where they have gross domestic happiness, they've got pigs cutting about eating marijuana on the street, they've not got any traffic lights? I mean, perhaps that's a more extreme example, but I, I wonder how you think about, you know, Westminster talking about, you know, growth and the anti-growth coalition. How, how do you see, you know, Scotland? 
I think the I think the idea so so gross domestic uh, happiness is 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 so a gross domestic something right that's an indicator of how well we're doing and and it's not just Bhutan and 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 I think it's happening in Scotland already right the government talks about um, well-being economy uh, so. I think we need a Scotland that looks at much more like local forms of community developed economy. I mean, one of the struggles I have right now is how do I get, how do I support communities to have a look in on businesses that are kind of bringing in onshore wind farms or um, other kind of um, industry into their, into their area. The community doesn't see any benefit from that. And yet they're the ones that sometimes have to, uh, deal with the the externality, right? The the, the damage to the nature, um, and and you see that a lot actually also with things like the tourism sector invites people into the North Coast 500, but it's the communities that have to deal with it. And there's nothing, there isn't, there's benefit maybe to um, some of the local economy, but not to everybody. So it's like, how do we get an economy that works absolutely for everybody and actually keeps people in place in Scotland? And I and I actually think one of the things that will unlock that more is the change in land ownership the um there's no at the moment we have a small number of people owning a, a large portion of scotland people of wealth who have no need to be thoughtful or creative about how they use that land and in many cases they're receiving public money to plant trees or to farm uh, farm on that land and I think we need to look to our Scandinavian partners and see, you know, many, many more people have smaller patches of land and they're, you know, they're doing uh, not necessarily all the time, but because they're doing good things, not necessarily all the time, but I think it's a much healthier way. And I certainly come across across the region. I come across people of all ages, but a lot of young people who want to get on a piece of land, who've got lots of great ideas about how they can make small local economies and contribute in that way, working with nature rather than against it. And you made quite a powerful statement. If we change ourselves, the systems around us will also change. I wonder if you think right now we're too far brainwashed in terms of the environment and how, and how we treat it. Um, I think I have, I, um, are we too far brainwashed? I don't think everyone is, and I think again we need good leadership. But I, but I think you know you're you're drawing from my book, and I think that is this invitation to invite people to start thinking. And I think at this point people are looking around for what do I do, and it and and I think I got frustrated because the what do I do needs to go beyond recycling or you know that kind of everybody gets kind of caught up in like oh the plastic and this and that, but it's like it's a much much bigger change. Um, so yeah, I, I think um, one uh, something that I'm reconnecting with. I was excited about it some years ago. Is the idea of thinking along a bioregional scale. And actually, in the last session, I asked one of my colleagues before I was elected. I asked one of my colleagues if we could start looking at Scotland and land use and what we're doing with it at a bioregional level. So what I mean by that is if we took. Um, and there's a very good example of a project actually did that just got funding, a considerable amount of funding near me. So they're working with the Findhorn River. So if you take the river from the headwater all the way to where the river comes out into the Murray Firth and then into what's called the inshore limits. So um, three mile, three nautical miles, let's just use that. 
and they're looking at how can we do restoration of the river uh, from the, the beginning to all the way out to sea and work together in kind of partnership with everybody along that, everyone who is a stakeholder, whether it's a landowner, but a community on it, um, but also the nature that's is there. Uh, so I start to think about that. And like, like one of the things that I am challenged by is that we've got quite a urban rural split in Scotland, Central Belt, quite a lot of, uh, you know, many, many people live there, obviously. And there's a, there's a drift from the, uh, the rural and the islands to the Central Belt. Naturally, young people want to leave home, they want to explore, um, but actually they want to come back and they can't come back. So this bi-regional piece for me, and thinking about our, our relationship to land and place along the whole river, I think that can unlock something. So if we take that idea of the river and we think about the River Clyde that goes through Glasgow, that touches so many people's lives. And if we can start to talk about to young people, the relationship upstream, so out into the hills um, in, you know, outside of Glasgow and then out into the Clyde estuary and that whole Clyde kind of bioregion touches, you know, touches along Danoon and you know, the south side of Argyll and out into the Ayrshires. And it's this thing about thinking rather than thinking ourselves being stuck in a city, it's like, how do we actually find the, that, that, that piece of nature? And in this case, it's the river that links us to something much more. And, and so we can start to stand in a place where we're not only people who are urban, but we're interconnected to rural and um, larger aspects of nature. So, and you know, you, you were saying, are we, I think you said brainwashed or we're too far gone. <laughs> but I think there are things that we, it's, it's like, can we find the intervention and look at things in a different way so that we can start to tap back into that, that humanity in ourselves, that piece, that, that nature that we already are as well. I'm going to say brainwashed. I just meant so entrenched in our current economic system. Uh -huh. I mean, and, and I look at the conversation down in Westminster and I, I, I don't remember the last time climate action was actually mentioned the last time I watched the telly and we're, we're solely focused on growth. And a, a lot of people also think, well, we need a sort of balanced uh, transition into a greener world. But I worry that the proposals that you'd like to see are, are so radical that politicians can't even envisage, envi uh, envision it to, just now. I don't think they are radical. And actually with Greens and government, they're being carried forward. We've got the Just Transition Fund that's happening to support oil and gas workers uh, transitioning from that sector into other, other um, jobs. And obviously a lot of really incredible skills that could be deployed elsewhere that work for the benefit of nature. So, you know, I think there, I, I think Scotland is leading the way and that's partly because we have this relationship with, with the government, we've got our two ministers in there able to do a tremendous amount of work. And then the five of us, um, um, you know, we are all, the remaining five MSPs, we are all interacting and talking to our counterpart cabinet secretaries and ministers on issues and supporting um, that green perspective and that need to shift. Um, I think we've suffered for decades of, uh, sadly a lot of media uh kind of fear mongering in a way 
what we need to be doing and we are we are decades behind in what we need to be doing and and so that actually makes um the change harder and more urgent and we don't have that we don't have a kind of graceful time to do it we've we've really got to do it and it, and it is something i've started to actually say and i feel like i want to start saying it every time i speak in the chamber now so watch this space maybe i will um but you know we are really standing in a place of where we absolutely need urgency and we all need to start recognizing that um radical change needs to happen and we and we need to be you know participating in it actively because i think if we just sit back uh and it ha happens to us as i said earlier i think it's more overwhelming than if we're actually involved in it and the greens are growing i just wonder how you're enjoying the chamber the greens are growing and uh, I'm learning to enjoy the chamber. Um, it's, uh, you know, I've done public speaking before, but it's another experience. And I, I think at the moment I'm still, you know, learning. It's like, you know, you can't just get up there and say anything because, you know, it's important to say you have your facts right and all that kind of information. So I'm used to more speaking off the cuff, but in the chamber, I'm kind of make sure I've got my notes there. Um, and uh, there, um, you know, there's kind of a whole... Yeah, I think I would love to see us get to a place where the kind of the, the debate happens more fluidly. And I'm learning from a lot of colleagues um, who have much more experience in there. They've been MSPs for a lot longer. So I definitely take note, no matter what party they're from, I think you can learn from people's skills in that way. And coming back to your book, uh, you talk a lot about how the role of women is absolutely essential in combating a world that's largely catered to wealthy white men. And this brings us quite nicely to our next topic of women's rights, because we obviously had the, the controversy surrounding uh, the ability to self-ID for, for trans people last week. There was big protests outside the parliament. Um, JK Rowling called out Nicola Sturgeon in a, in a controversial way, uh, let's say. Um, I wonder what you how what's your long-term goal in terms of gender? Would you like to see a sort of totally gender fluid society in wherein equality is inherent? Or do you think this system of man and woman is fine but just needs tremendous work? Well, um I, I well, I think one of the things is I, I don't know if you saw the um little excerpt um that gina davison did with nicola sturgeon after that i think it was just last week and i think that was great that actually there was time for the first minister actually to expand on on the issue and and i think it is it's terribly sad that the gender recognition um you know the need for self-id has been caught up in this kind of fear storm and um i think I think people need to, I, I think what, what's my long-term view? I think, I don't think it's about me. It's about listening to other people and, and, and what do people, what do people want? So there are people who want to identify as non-binary. I think we, that should absolutely be accepted. There are people who are trans who are suffering greatly because they can't, um, you know, get their needs met and, and do that piece of self-ID without, um, you know, a great deal of um, personal struggle and difficulty. So, you know, I think the piece that we need to be recognizing um, as a side, and I think that's coming through many women, is the fact that women have suffered at um, you know male violence for 
for forever for as long as you know my life but beyond that longer and and I think that is what we need to be addressing and and helping so helping men and I think it's been some work be you know happening with that that how how do you, how should men um treat women and uh, you know how do we respect each other um and that violence to anyone is is not okay but that women have experienced it um uh, at uh, extreme levels over history and that that's not gone away it's still there it, it, you know we live in Scotland where it's better but there are other countries where um, there's genital mutilation uh, women are stoned to death you know so uh, there's a lot of work still to be done yeah and, and you mentioned the first minister who quite um, frankly put that it isn't women that are the problem it, it is men you know, the, when we talk about the dangers of um, the self-ID uh, bill, you know, they, they talk about prisons and how the ease of which men could change their gender quite easily to go into a women's prison, which endangers them. Uh, you know, they talk about, you know, the danger of toilets and men being able to walk into women's toilets, you know, quite freely and and claim that, uh, that there are women quite easily. And, you know, the the sort of recurrent problem here is is the man. And... I just wonder what the active plan is to combat the behaviour of men in the world where it is easier to self-ID. I think it's education. I mean, um, yeah, I think it's education. I think it's, um, I, and I'm aware that, yeah, I think we need to be having national conversations about it and, um, talking to young men, I think it's also difficult, right? Because I also sit in a place where I witness, um, and you know, I live in a region where there's a high level of uh, young male suicide. So I, I, I think so many uh, of the, the structures that we've had in the past that were not working, that were creating harm to, to people need to be readdressed, but we need to get much, much better at talking to each other about these things and starting it early. Uh, and, I, and I think that schools are getting better at that. I certainly didn't have it when I was growing up, but I think the whole kind of equalities conversation happens in schools. And, and I think that's, that's really important. Well, we're coming to an end, Ariane. You've been an absolute pleasure to have on the podcast. I do like to end these things with a few more lighthearted questions because the conversation can get a little bit heavy. Uh, so first off, Ariane, which do you prefer, Scotland or America? Oh, come on. No, Scotland. Absolutely. Absolutely Scotland. <laughs> Why did you say come on? Because there's a little bit of my heart left back in New York City. But uh, in turn, yeah, Scotland is just a fantastic place to be. Well, here's another question. If you could bring three things that you love about America to Scotland, what would they be? Um, my friends that I had in New York City, amazing bunch of people. Uh, all kind of you know climate ag activists and, and working for the fighting for the planet and, and that all that good stuff. Um, I think I think the way that people communicate in in New York City and I think it's possibly due to a Dutch influence. People are much more forward and frank and don't sort of start hold back on kind of politeness. And, and I think that we could benefit from that, you know, being a bit more frank and open and not being offended by things, but just understanding that that's somebody sharing their view or their perspective. And what uh, would you say? Thing, some of the 
even bigger landscapes than we have here. Like, you know, the Grand Canyon is pretty awesome. Nice. And uh, what would you say is the low light and the highlight of your political career so far? Oh, okay. I think the highlight has been securing the Food Commission for Scotland. I think that's absolutely important. It was a huge, it was a piece that was missing in the Good Food Nation Bill. And um, a lot of people campaigned on the Good Food Nation Bill for a very long time and advocated and pushed for an oversight body. And uh, I happened to be the person that was, you know, in front of the goal when the ball came my way and I got to kick it in. That's the metaphor I like to use. So um, so securing the, the Food Commission has been the highlight. Low light, I don't, I don't know. I think the low light might have been just feeling like I was drowning for what I call the first seven weeks. So once you get elected, you've got se about seven weeks up until recess. And it is just information overload because you're not only learning your portfolios and you know all of those different topics that you have to kind of understand and the the um, acronyms and the jargon you've got to learn the the parliamentary systems you know when do you when do you bid for a question and how you're supposed to behave in the chamber and all those things so it's like it's it's a lot and then and things like you've got to suddenly hire a team so the first seven weeks was intense full on and I definitely felt like I was drowning and by the time I got to recess it was like okay I, I, my head is above water but uh, so it's a pretty that's a pretty full-on um, experience which I, I think something I I'm keen to talk more about because I want more women more more people more um, people of color to come and be part of our parliament be more representative and uh, I definitely I'm you know making notes of my experience as I go along so I can share that with people. Well, thank you for that. Have you got anything else you want to say to our listeners, Ariane? Just that um, it's a fantastic opportunity that you're creating with untribal po politics for more people to engage with politics. And, uh, and, I, and I think that, you know, politics is what shapes our lives. It's what shapes Scotland. And the more people that engage with politics and become politicians and move away from this um, you know, I think that the media, again, does us a disservice by saying that politicians are all terrible. It's like, no, actually, um, we're human beings. We are trying to do our bit and represent people and help shape Scotland in a good way. And, uh, and I think more people that come in that mix and bring their perspective, we're going to have a better and more representative Scotland. And that's absolutely what we need. One advert that was, by the way, that is getting plastered all over the Instagram. <laughs> You've done well there. Thanks very much, Ariane. Cheers. Great. Thank you, Ennis. Cheers. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.